This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with award-winning journalist Aaron Whack, a national writer for the Associated Press, concentrating on race and ethnicity. She writes about urban affairs, policing, historically black colleges, civil rights, and the black electorate, among other racial issues. She talks about covering race in America during President Obama's time in office and since Donald Trump's inauguration. She also talks about the racial backlash currently being experienced in America. Aaron, sort of give us a rundown of your career. You've done so much and you've been so many different places, but hit the highlights for us. Yeah, so uh, I actually got started in journalism in Atlanta, which is my hometown, uh, at a small black newspaper that published twice a week called the Atlanta Daily World. And I was actually still a student when I started writing at the Daily World, but I needed some clips from somewhere. Absolutely. And so I got directed over to Auburn Avenue in downtown Atlanta, walked in the door, said, you know, hey, could you maybe use, you know, somebody to occasionally pitch in here for some stories? And they said, can you start today? <laughs> you know, so that was <laughs> really the nice. beginning of my career in earnest. It really, it really was. Uh, and, and, and that really was foundational and formational for me as a journalist because, you know, I was writing stories about the black community in Atlanta. And, and those editors told me that those stories were important. You know, they were putting my stories on the front page. And so I learned really early in my career that stories about race were important stories. They were valid stories and that they needed to be covered because if I wasn't doing them, then they might go uncovered. And so that was really, really an important time in, in my life in journalism. And, and everything that happened you know, for me after stemmed from that early experience that I was able to get my internships and then eventually uh, my first jobs uh, as a fellow at the Los Angeles Times and then uh, as a reporter at the Orlando Sentinel and then uh, at the Associated Press where I'd actually been an intern in the Atlanta Bureau. So that was really amazing being able to write about my hometown, but really for a national audience uh, about race issues, the civil rights you know, community, the legacy of that, uh, historically black colleges, young black professionals in Atlanta, and eventually the black electorate with the election of Barack Obama focused a lot on them, the black middle class. You know, that work took me to covering uh, the state house, the Georgia state house, uh, later the Virginia state house for the Washington Post. And now I'm back with the Associated Press in Philadelphia, where I'm our national writer on race and ethnicity issues. Well, you've hit some of the top newspapers still remaining in the country, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, Absolutely. the Orlando Sentinel, all with sterling reputations yeah. and and major traditions. But but let me ask, when when you hit all of those big papers, what did you take with you from your start, from your writing for the, the, the black newspapers mm-hmm. in Atlanta? Well, you know— even though it wasn't necessarily a part of my official beat in the beginning, right. I still did seek out stories about, uh, you know, race. I looked for those kind of untold stories in communities that, that are traditionally overlooked, 
you know, and really wanted to bear witness for, uh, you know, the types of people that, you know, I knew that, that wanted to see themselves reflected, you know, in these newspapers. And so, for example, when I was in Orlando, writing about formerly incarcerated people trying to get their, their rights restored, you know, right. felon re-enfranchisement. Uh, you know, but also there was, you know, a little neighborhood woman that I still remember who sold, you know, frozen treats every day after school for a quarter to children. You know, everybody had a woman like that in their neighborhood, you know, where I grew up and, and, and talking to other folks. And so, uh, you know, that story was something that resonated with a lot of people because she had been really, you know, kind of an anchor of that community. You could identify with Exactly, her. exactly. And so, you know, I was covering county government, you know, in Orlando, but I stumbled across this woman and her story and, and, and wanted to tell that. And, and uh, you know, so that was really the kind of thing that I would do, uh, you know, even before I was officially covering kind of urban affairs, race issues on a regular basis. It's always been a criticism of press in general, but certainly newspapers, that they have not been as racially diverse in staffing as they should be. Um, that was a problem when I was starting out, but it still seems to be a problem today. Have, have we made much headway? Not nearly enough. Uh, not nearly enough. So, uh, you know, we, as you probably are aware, are in the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Report. And Kerner said, you know, back in 1968, that diversity in newsrooms, not just at the reporter level, but really in the management and decision-making level, was so necessary to achieving the kind of accurate portrayal of these communities that was sorely lacking and, and, and led to, frankly, a lot of the misunderstanding, a lot of the ignorance, uh, you know, about uh, communities of color in America. And so I think that the same is, is still largely true today. You know, people were so surprised by, you know, a Ferguson, Baltimore, Cleveland, you know, didn't understand that this was happening. And yet this was in plain sight, you know, for anybody who had been willing to be in those communities and covering those communities and prioritizing, you know, those communities, uh, even though, you know, maybe these were not your subscriber base, you know, but nonetheless, you know, things were, were happening there that were a part of the fabric you know, of, of those towns. And, 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 you know, that was something that was missed, frankly, in part because of a lack of diversity in and our newspapers it, and, and other media outlets. And all too often, we look at diversity as just racial diversity, and most assuredly it is. But there's also been a problem in uh, religious diversity and, and covering uh uh, the Muslim community Absolutely. and other uh, religious communities within the country. Yes. Diversity of experience is and background is also so important, you know, because obviously black people are not a monolith either. You no, know, right. we didn't all go to the same schools. You know, we don't all come from the same parts of the country. And so, you know, and, and you bring that experience even, you know, with, uh, you know, objectivity being a value, you know, you bring that experience to your work. We all bring our life experiences to our work. And that's that's very real and can be very valuable, frankly, uh, in, in how we, uh, you know, tell stories and the types of stories that we prioritize. Uh, you know, and I, as, as somebody who covers race, am very clear that there's a lot that I don't know about other cultures and people that don't look like me. And I'm very sensitive uh, to that because I do want to accurately portray people who, frankly, you know, don't get their stories told enough. So the last thing I want to do, you know, when I do come along and want to report on their community is to get it wrong. 
And you're right. I think that we look at various communities of, as monolithic. <laughs> they most assuredly are not uh, in in any sh- way, shape, or form. Right. Say the travel ban, for example, right. happens. The default setting for you know many journalists would be just to run on over to the mosque and see what you know see what they think about that. Well, what if I told you that that not all Muslims even go to mosque, and that might not be you know the central place that you might want to go to kind of gauge the temperature of that community in response to you know this story, you know, or if you actually were plugged into the Muslim community for for all news, not just bad news or scary news, then you know you might have a better sense of of you know, where you need to go and who you need to talk to to really get, you know, some insights into how this is going to impact that community. And and we so easily think that our immigration problem is twofold. It's either Muslim or Mexican. <laughs> and it seems that we have those blinders on. Absolutely. And even some of the media have those blinders Absolutely. on, broadcast especially. Or just that we're talking about um, – domestic folks or people who um you know are are doing jobs that nobody else wants to do i mean i'm so i'm based in philadelphia and you know one of the biggest rallies that we saw in philadelphia i mean we did have day without an immigrant which was hugely impactful uh, especially in the restaurant industry but we also had a lot of workers at comcast you know in the telecommunications industry uh cable you know cable industry you know who are recruited from overseas for their expertise and for their skills. And so, you know, to have a company like that recognizing, listen, this is going to impact us in a huge way, you know, if, if this is something that, you know, if, if you know, immigration policy is something that we care about because we are recruiting, you know, from a lot of the places that could, you know, could be, I guess, you know, held back a bit if, you know, depending on what happens with the administration. And so to think about it in those terms as well, you know, professional immigrants, you know, you know, highly educated and highly skilled immigrants from everywhere. Um, you know, those those are folks that, that are uh, imp- that impact our economy as well. The AP, uh, you're you're on the race and ethnicity team. Yes. So tell us about that. What is AP done maybe that's a little different than what other news organizations has done? Well, so um, race is obviously something that has become a lot more popular yeah, right. uh, in recent years, right? Uh, obviously, with the uh, election of, of President Obama, that historic election of our country's first black president, uh, there was a lot more attention on race. But I think also with the rise of President Trump uh, and folks, frankly, beginning to consider what white identity means, uh, race is something uh, that that uh, people are paying a lot more attention to. And so a couple of years ago, uh, the Associated Press, which had already been, you know, doing some race reporting, decided to formalize that with a race team. Uh, And so uh, we are a group of reporters, editors, photographers, videographers, um, spread across the country with uh, varying areas of expertise, you know, from African-Americans to Latinos to Muslims to Native Americans, um, you know, focused on a, a range of cultures. Uh, and, you know, we it's really a collaborative effort uh, that's kind of awesome because we get to t- we get to be in conversation about race as a group on a regular basis, we're all learning from each other, you know, because again, 
different people have different areas of expertise. So, you know, I'm learning far more, uh, you know, because I get to pick the brains of my very talented and, and, and colleagues who are grounded in, in, in some of these other areas, uh, which only strengthens my reporting. And I, and I really do believe provides a, a stronger overall report for the Associated Press uh, with more original, you know, coverage that you're not going to find necessarily everywhere else. You obviously uh, were a journalist during the Obama period uh, and now are a working journalist during the, the Trump period. What was it like covering race under President Obama? He tried, I believe, not to mention it often, but when he did, uh, it was a, a thoughtful uh, approach to race and, and religious differences in, in the country. What was that like covering his administration? Uh, it was interesting, especially in the beginning, you know, because it was kind of for him, it really was kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of thing. I mean, you know, he tried not to talk about race too much, even as he was aware of, you know, his historic candidacy and then election. Um, so it's not as if he wasn't aware uh, of, of the accomplishment that he had done, but he also was aware that he was president of the United States, of all Americans, right? And so he was, you know, trying to govern kind of with that in mind. Um, but at the same time, you know, race was something that, it, it is something that permeates our society, you know, and, and it is something that is, is is with us whether we want it to be or not, you know, sometimes, and that includes him. Uh, you know, so even as, uh, you know, you had black, many, many black Americans celebrating, you know, Barack Obama's presidency, you also had a huge racial backlash that was brewing even then uh, that, that people uh, maybe didn't take enough notice of because, frankly, I do think that that is in part how we got to where we are now. Uh, uh, with President Trump, not saying that, certainly not saying or suggesting that that everyone who voted for him, you know, is racist or or, or resented, you know, President Obama being black, but but there was an element of that. And and so much of it as an observer, it was unspoken or yeah. it was coded. Absolutely, and, and much of it was led by other elected officials. I I, I believe. The way Congress treated uh, President Obama uh, would not have been as stark if there hadn't been a racial element. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just the label Obamacare. You know what that meant uh, for that, people. That, you, you might know, as well it, say welfare, right? <laughs> free, free stuff, right? Yeah. The you know makers and the takers, uh, that kind of thing. But I mean, even I mean, let's face it, President Trump's current political ambitions began in earnest when he began his birther crusade you know to de- questioning delegitimize uh, yes the, the first my black mouth's president. not working but you know what i yeah, mean yeah questioning you know his his citizenship and frankly birthright to to run for office uh you know that is that is um you know kind of how he enters you know the modern political scene so during that time uh as as a reporter, did you concentrate on on race still uh, as as an underlying issue under Obama to to try to interpret what it all meant? I did, and you know, frankly, towards the end of his presidency, he was more outspoken yes. on issues of race, 
And Eric Holder, you know, was somebody who frequently had even gone even further than President Obama around issues of race. And so um, as they were kind of emboldened on their way out to address some of those issues, uh, I was able to get into that a lot more from them directly as opposed to kind of, I guess, a little bit more reluctantly wade into some of those or conversations. They talked in code sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> as, as, as well to, to face the issues, not necessarily directly, but but uh, to still face, face the issues. Absolutely. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Now you are covering President Trump, mm-hmm. and, and obviously the the difference is stark. Yes. Outline for us, though, some of those stark realities of, of the new president and new administration as you see it. Even at the outset of, of President Trump's uh, campaign, you know, you have him coming down the escalator referring to Mexicans as rapists. I mean, that was kind of his opening, right. uh, you know, introduction to voters. <laughs> And so you had communities of color being, you know, skeptical. As I said, African-Americans who, you know, saw him, you know, with this birther campaign uh, even before he ran for president. And so they're skeptical, you know, of him as well. Muslims not understanding exactly what, you know, he, you know, a Trump presidency would mean for, for you know, uh, America's stance on, on, you know, international terrorism, uh, you know. And so... With President Obama, obviously, most of those groups overwhelmingly voted for that president. Most of these groups, or none, in fact, none of the none of these groups, you know, uh, supported President Trump in particularly large numbers. You know, uh, the only group, you know, that President Trump did win was white, you know, white voters. Uh, Fifty-eight to thirty-seven, I think, was 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 uh, what what it was. Um, but, I mean, 8% of black people voted for Donald Trump. 28% of Latinos voted for Donald Trump. So um, so what I find myself charged with now, and in fact, the, the, the beat that I was assigned just a few days after President Trump was elected was covering how minorities are going to fare, you know, under this president. And, and frankly, you know, I think, you know, while there was kind of a tendency to want to 
say that we were post-racial, you know, after President Obama's election. Right. I think what we found is that America is hyper-racial. And so, you know, the thought that race was going to fade from the scene with this president, uh, with President Obama, uh, I think uh, people realized in, in very short order that, that this was still very much going to be an issue that is with us. And there was a lot of focus kind of in the immediate and, and probably still to some degree now on the angry or frustrated white voters that, that supported uh, President Trump. But, but there also has to be, I think, a focus on the communities of color who didn't necessarily vote for him but, but, but are still going to be impacted by their government. The impact of the election, though, was felt, I think, racially and ethnically immediately after the election. I remember just a few weeks after the election, I interviewed uh, a Muslim uh, man whose wife dressed in traditional uh, garb and his children were going to public school and he was truly afraid for his family and his wife lived in such fear that she wouldn't even go out of the house. You know, the, the, these things started immediately. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and whereas I think um, Barack Obama, you know, even in his acceptance speech was, was wanting to reassure, frankly, white Americans that he was the president of everyone. Right. I think that there were groups that were looking for kind of that same either reassurance or, or, or emphasis that, that, that the president understood that he was representing everyone and, and, and looking for him to set a tone that didn't necessarily happen to the same. But, but the inauguration speech was dire. Right. And, it, it was, and dark and, it, it, and, and full of fear. I, 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 similar, well, I remember uh, election night as well. I was uh, watching the returns with friends and, and, and uh, then took an Uber home with my husband. And, you know, we're you know, our Uber driver was a Middle Eastern man, you know, and at first, you know, nobody was really saying anything in the in the car. But then eventually, you know, the election came up and, you know, we asked him, you know, how he felt about the outcome. And he was very blunt. I mean, he said, you know, this is going to be very bad for me and my family. And you could hear the concern and the hurt in his voice um, about that. You know, but at the same time, in the weeks after the election, you know, folks who had been concerned started seeing some of those concerns realized with some of the appointments, with some of the nominations. I mean, Attorney General Jeff Sessions definitely comes to mind for African Americans. <laughs> right. uh, you know, they, they were like, you know, this person could not be more opposite, uh, you know, of, of Eric Holder. But I mean, even beyond that, had there not been an Eric Holder, like this, this person's views on their own are problematic for us, you know, and, and do not suggest that you are really interested in the things that we are interested in. Just a few days after after the inauguration, having the travel ban, you know, put in place, um, you know, that freaked a lot of people out, you know. And, and frankly, you had white folks uh, as well as people of color rushing to the airports to protest Absolutely. that and to stand up for friends and neighbors to say, you know, that this is this is something that they didn't agree with, you know. I'm a different generation than you. I'm I'm a boomer. And one of the things that I'm confronting is just an overwhelming sadness. Uh, I lived through the the civil rights era and uh, the uh, 
uh, Voting Rights Act, sure. the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, uh, uh, the unfortunate uh, assassination of Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. I mean, but but I had thought mistakenly, I had thought that between those times in the late 60s and 2016 to 2018, that we had made some progress as a culture and as a nation on issues of race. And we have. But it's overwhelmed by the negativity and the racism that I see coming from this administration, the overt racism. And it just makes me sad that we have not made the progress that I thought we had. Well, you know, here's what I'd say to that. You know, there has, in the history of this country, there has never been racial progress without racial backlash. You had slavery, you had the Civil War, you have Reconstruction. Reconstruction begets Jim Crow. You know, they to- we toppled Jim Crow. And, you know, for a while, yes, things were progressing uh, and improving. But race in America is something that we have to be vigilant about. Like, it's never going to be uh, a mission accomplished, problem solved kind of thing. And I think that what a lot of people from that era are realizing is that a lot of that progress did lull some people into a sense of complacency. And I think culminated with Absolutely. President Obama's Absolutely. election. Absolutely. And, we, and thought, thought, hey, we, we made it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, but again, that unleashed something, you know, in this country where uh, you've got folks feeling threatened about their way of life being taken away and doing whatever they think that they need to do to preserve that. Now, you know, I certainly am not a person that subscribes to the notion that everybody that voted for President Trump is a racist. Like, that's not true. I have been to communities and I have seen folks struggling, you know, their economies gone and all kinds of health issues. And so hearing from someone who says, you know, I'm going to improve your health care and I'm going to bring jobs back to your community, you're open to that message, even to the exclusion of all the other messages that this person may be putting out, right? And so I understand that. I certainly try to go into all those communities with a very open mind um, to try to hear from them uh, for understanding, not for sympathy necessarily, because I think it's, it's important to be clear. A lot of the people that voted for Barack Obama in 2008 were people who felt unheard and who were frustrated as well. Right. We didn't cover them in the same way that we cover these voters today. How so? It was more sympathetic then than than now. Now it's more sympathetic. Now it's more now it's we need to we need to understand working class white people uh, their plight, what it is they're going through, and it's like well there there are people in inner city communities that have been struggling for way longer than people who are just now finding themselves set back a little bit. You know, it's one thing to lose your house, and I get that, and that is definitely tragic. It's one thing to never be in a position to own anything. You know, and, and, and not only did you not, were you not ever in a position, your parents, your grandparents were never in a position to own anything either. And yet we don't talk about them as being, you know, kind of these communities of despair. You know, we say, why don't you get your act together 
and pull yourself up. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I mean. We've always had it, but I think it's probably more acute now. I'd love to hear your view of it. This politics of division, uh, and you've talked about it a little bit, but it's even division among uh, the races and uh, among various groups. I mean, the Mexicans, according to the president, are rapists, and and whenever you hear of the border, it's always bringing in drugs, and 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 right. uh, you're a member of a gang <laughs> instantly. Uh, it, it, and then the the whole uh, white supremacist and 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 white uh, nationalism mm-hmm. movement, uh, and and there's the Jewish community and the African American community, and but it seems that this administration, at least to me, is practicing uh, the politics of division and pitting one group against another more or in their view, better, and not in my view, but in their view, better than past administrations. Is, is What do you think about that? Is that true? I think that what his campaign was very good at doing was harnessing a divisiveness that was already, already in there. the climate. Okay. It was already in the atmosphere. The country was, in many ways, you know, while some people were celebrating, you know, the post-racial era, it was being divided anew. Um, you know, there were there were people that were resentful, you know, of of President Obama's time in office, and who couldn't wait, you know, for that to be over, uh, and who uh, now, you know, feel like their faith in America has been restored, uh, you know, as a result of the election of President Trump. Social media is very effective at kind of reinforcing uh, views that we may already have. The uh, silo approach. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, we're not necessarily in the way that maybe we used to encounter people with different perspectives and be able to engage with them in a civil, civic way. Uh, that's not something that happens as much anymore. It's not something that people value, I feel like, in the way that we used to value that. Uh, you know, I live in Philadelphia now. And I, I will tell you, I mean, I think a lot about, you know, kind of what it means to be a citizen now, in the way that those, you know, original folks, you know, really took citizenship seriously. Mm-hmm. And what that means. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, regardless of, of who you voted for, you know, in, a, in the election, you know, we are you know, th- these are your fellow citizens. And, you know, the thought that you can't engage with, you know, somebody else who, you know, is an American, I, I, you know, that that it shouldn't be that way. One, uh, one last area I want to talk to you about, and that, that's the area of objectivity. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I know it's always been a goal of, of journalism and journalists to, to be objective. But I think that I would have, if I were covering the White House or if I were covering the Trump administration, I would have great difficulty being objective with someone like Stephen Miller that advises the president on so many issues around immigration and, and race. First, is it still necessary to 
have that objectivity? And if it is, how do you do that? Well, I think what's necessary is being fair and telling the truth. Because those things are very important right now. Uh, You know, letting somebody express their point of view for the purpose of balance and not pushing back against things that you know are wrong. If somebody tells you that two plus two is five, you're not going to quote them just because that's what they said. You're not just going to leave that out there for people to accept as fact because that's what they want to say. Uh, and so, you know, we're not stenographers. We're here to provide context and to um, tell people why something matters and why they should care. And so part of that is being accurate, you know, and and that has to be at least as important, you know, as trying to be objective, trying to be balanced, trying to be fair. Because if we're not accurate, you know, I, I don't think, you know, being objective is not going to fix that, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, when you have, you know, a situation like Charlottesville and the president of the United States wants to say, that, you know, there's blame on both sides. And they're nice people. <laughs> and that they're nice people. And, you know, what are we, you know, what are we really talking about here? Or... Maybe the Civil War, you know, wasn't fought over slavery. And it could have been compromised. (laughs) It's like, no, like we're not like, no, I I could be objective and and, and let that just kind of sit there and not do anything about it. But it's also a chance to educate people. (laughs) And so, yes, you know, the president did say this or, or, or someone did say this. But here's, you know. Here is more information that you probably need to understand, you know, this this particular story. At AP, we do, we you know, we have a fact check that, that is largely successful because, you know, it, it doesn't just leave those kinds of statements kind of dangling out there for people to, 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 to figure out on their own, you know. And you're also fairly restrictive on using uh, anonymous sources. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I know AP has has very strict rules on that. Yeah. Aaron, thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the conversation. Me too. This was great. Thank you so much. Today we've been talking with Aaron Wack of the Associated Press about racial issues facing America under the Donald Trump presidency. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer, I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.